what you call God. Scripture portrays hell as our default destination. If nothing changes, that's where we're going to go. Inner peace is the ultimate source of happiness. Jesus was himself very, very clear about the reality and threat of hell. Atheism itself is a kind of fantasy world. A finite being in a finite segment of time receives infinite punishment. God hates you. Eleven people have been confirmed. Let's stop the killing and choose peace. We can all be saved. Shut tonight. And I pray that you, you go to hell for all of eternity. Blah, 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 what is sin? Hey, everybody, I'm Greg. Teacher here with the Hill Church. Really good to be back here. I look a little bit different. Uh, Shelly and I, my lovely bride, who is, what, 37 today. Uh, yes, it's 27, 37. Happy birthday, honey. Uh, we had a chance to, with some friends to get down to Mexico and soak up a little bit of sun. It was wonderful. I so appreciate uh, Brianna uh, with those funky gloves. Uh, filling in last week, wasn't she great? Great word, man. You're a gift to the church. Just love you. Yes, she's fantastic. Um, yeah, so that's... Uh, it's been good, but it's good to get back. So, on a happy note, I thought we'd talk about hell. What do you say? Yeah, let's talk about hell. It's, you know. Uh, we're entitling this, uh, in this series that we're in, Mixed Signals, what's, uh, how to hold on to a Christian faith in the pluralistic culture. This is called Going to Hell in a Nutshell. Everything you want to know about hell in a nutshell. There you go. And I want to start with uh, John 14, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Now, Jesus had just said, said you've seen him, but Philip's a little slow. So uh, Jesus answered, don't you know me? I just told you. Even after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Why then do you ask, show us the Father? I want to explore what that means for Jesus to be the way, the truth, and life. And now I want to explore the question of uh, what's the fate of those who don't believe that? Is it the case that everybody who doesn't believe that goes to hell? And what is the nature of hell? So we have some heavy topics here this morning, folks. Um, I'm going to cover a lot of verses. It's going to be a little bit intense. It's a theological teaching time, so be taking notes if that helps you remember things. Um, And it's going to be excellent. Pray with me here. Father, I thank you for everybody in this auditorium, everyone listening through podcasts or any other means. And I pray, Lord, that you right here open up our hearts and minds to receive your word. Whatever is true and fits, highlight it. Whatever is not true, let it fall to the ground flat. But use this, Lord, infuse it with your message to use it to clarify if that's what needs to happen in people's lives, to convict if that's what needs to happen in people's lives, to encourage if that's what needs to happen. Lord, let your word just accomplish all that you will. And not return void. All I can do is open my mouth. I can't make that happen. So Holy Spirit, we turn this over to you. In Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is one of those statements of Jesus where if he is not the Son of God, Savior of the world, revelation of God, then he's an absolute lunatic. To say, I, the only way to get to God is through me. Think about that. That's either massively megalomaniac, or he's telling the truth. Now, the thing is this. Whatever else we take that passage to mean, note the definite article. 
the. I am the way, the truth, and the life. It means, then, there can't be many ways, many truths, and many lives. If Jesus is telling the truth, then there's one way, and it's through Jesus, and only through Jesus. Now, that doesn't land well in this culture at this present time, you may have noticed. Because we are in a pluralistic culture, the world has shrunken massively in the last hundred years. Um, where we're just aware of the plurality of beliefs. That's what this whole series is about. Many truth claims that are out there. Many different religions. People sincerely believing that. And in that kind of environment, it gets harder to say, no, here is the particular truth. In this kind of environment, it's much easier to say, oh, all, all sincere beliefs lead us to heaven. All roads lead to God. Or to say, you know, my truth is my truth and your truth is your truth. In this environment that we're in now, my experience has been, especially on college campuses, that people feel enlightened when they repeat Oprah in a crowd, and they say, oh, you know, all, all truths lead to God. All, all, all beliefs, you know, are, are equal. They lead to God, and, and everyone has their own personal truth. It just sounds smart, enlightened. Uh, and to claim that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and life, that sounds intolerant and narrow-minded. And I'm sure some of us have been accused of that. How can you believe your particular beast is the right one? Now, what I want to first show is this, that that belief that all roads lead to God, that all truth is relative to the person, that's called relativism, that all truth is relative to your personal perception. Your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth. That belief is not, by definition, open-minded. People feel open-minded for saying that and repeating it, but as a matter of fact, that's an illusion. So consider this analogy. Suppose I'm out with five, four friends hiking in the woods, and um, after a while we come to an opening in the woods, and uh, we're kind of tired, so we decide to take a nap. So we lay down and take a nap. Half hour later, we wake up to the sound of crackling wood and, and, and the smell of smoke. The woods are on fire, and we got to get out of this place. Trouble is, turns out there's four different openings that lead to this, four different paths that lead to this opening in the woods. And unfortunately, we don't agree upon which path we took to get here, and that's the only sure path to get out. I say, it's this path. Another person says, no, it's this path. No, I distinctly remember it was this path. We, the four of us disagree. And the fifth guy says, oh, you people are so narrow. You just, don't you know that all paths lead you out of the woods with equal safety? Now, here's the thing. That person may be right, but they may be wrong. And each of us claiming that this is the path or this is the path, we may be right or we may be wrong. But the odds of the person claiming all roads lead out, the odds of them being right are exactly the same as any of us. Because in the end, we've got to take one path or the other. You see, it's not broad-minded to say that all paths lead you out. That's just as narrow a conclusion as saying this is the only path that will lead you out. Uh, what it shows is that what makes you broad-minded or not is not the scope of your conclusion. It's the reasoning process that got you there. Like, I'm pretty sure 2 plus 2 equals 4. What do you think? Now, is that narrow? Because, gosh, I just ruled out an infinity of other numbers. How narrow of you? Don't you know that all numbers are the right answer to 2 plus 2? Uh, no, there's only one right answer. In fact, if you think about it, there's always one right answer and an infinity of wrong answers to every question. What are these right here? Clear glasses. Like, how narrow of you? You just ruled out it being an aardvark or a bunny or a giraffe or a cloud or a hamburger. I mean, there's an infinity of other things it could be, but in fact, they are glasses. 
Two plus two is four. It's not three or five. If you disagree with that, let's have a little talk, and I have a shrink I'd like to uh, uh, share with you. Um, so it's not the scope of the conclusion. It is the reasoning that got you there. The way to resolve which path to take to get out of the woods uh, is to, is to say, what's up, what are the merits of each of the possible paths? Like, I could look at my path, and I, I, could, I, I could say, you guys, see that broken branch over there? Well, I, I remember walking up that path, and just before we got to this opening, I broke off a, a branch in, in two to use it as a toothpick. Um, I think this is the right path. Someone else might say, oh, no, no, no. Look, look, there's footprints here. They look kind of fresh. That has to be an indication that that's the path we took to get here. And so we discussed the merits of each path. And if you're willing to share why you think a certain path is the right path and listen to the other people's claims that they think this is the path, then that makes you broad-minded, regardless of the path you're choosing. And if the person in the middle who says all paths lead out, if he's not willing to listen to any reasoning, well, then he's the one who's narrow. Believing that all roads, uh, all paths lead you out is just as narrow as believing that a cucumber will save you uh, if, if you have no reasons for believing it. Cucumber will save you. That's, uh, there you go. So, so it, it, it's, to recite this mantra, there's nothing broad-minded about it. But Jesus says he's the way, the truth, and the life. He's either right or he's wrong. And, and, and so the way to resolve this, you're broad-minded if you can give reasons why you think he's telling the truth or reasons why you think he's not. That's fine. You're broad-minded if you're, if you're willing to consider all the sides and then make a decision based on that. But if you just believe it because that's what you were taught in eighth grade and it's too inconvenient for you to ever you know, change a belief, well, that's narrow-minded. But so is it to say he's wrong and not have any reasons for that. It's the reasoning process that leads to the conclusion that makes you broad-minded or open-minded, not the conclusion itself. Now, I, I've spent a good part of my life uh, looking at uh, this, this belief and looking at all the objections to this belief and looking at other beliefs, studying world religions. I taught that for 16 years. And I'll just tell you, of all the things I could possibly believe, this is the one that makes the most sense to me. And I can give you reasons for that. And there's some books out there that give those reasons. Uh, I, I, I can tell you, I, I know the objections, and I have responses to those objections. I've come to the point of saying, this is what I want to base my life on. This, this is the path I'm going to take. This is the one I think leads out of the forest. And if you're listening to this in this auditorium or through podcast, and you're not a person who's surrendered over to Jesus, I just want to encourage you to consider the reasons for believing that is true. I find the historical reasons and the philosophical reasons and the personal reasons to be just very, very compelling. Um, now, you might say, well, I guess I'm not sure, though. Maybe it sounds plausible, but I'm not sure. But see, when does life ever afford you the luxury of being sure? Really. I, I a couple of days ago, got on a plane and flew out of 85-degree Mexico to come to 2-degree below zero Minnesota. Why do we live here? I don't know. But uh, I did it. Now... I didn't know for sure that plane was going to make it. How could I be sure? I, I didn't know the mechanics, the, the mechanics of the job. There could have been a terrorist on board. Who knows? The pilots could be drunk. A lot of things can go wrong. Planes crash once in a while. I can't be certain the plane is going to be safe, but I'm confident enough to get on the plane and fly home. I have more reasons to think the plane's going to make it than it's not going to make it. Certainly I have more reasons to get on the plane and fly home than I do to try to walk home because it's a long way from Puerto Vallarta. So I get on the plane. It's an act of faith. And almost everything we do is an act of faith because we're certain about very little. So don't set the bar at certainty. Set the bar on reasonableness over and against the competition. And, and I find this, I've got more reasons to commit to living this way and developing this relationship than I do for any other. Consider it if you're not surrendered. And if it comes to the point where it makes sense to you to do so, surrender your life to him, amen? And um, start, uh, start, start your way in that Jesus walk. So Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And there's nothing narrow about that. That's no more narrow than 2 plus 2 equals 4 if he's telling the truth. And to find out if he's telling the truth, you have to look at all the evidence and, 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 and consider it. 
Which leads then to the second question, a super big one in our pluralistic age. And that is, is it the case that people who don't come to that conclusion go to hell? And before I address that question, I want to talk about hell. What's up with this thing that's called hell? Now, in the traditional view, at least since the 5th century, most theologians, not all, but most theologians throughout history have held that hell is eternal conscious suffering. It's endless torment. God holds these people in existence not to teach them a lesson or to redeem them or to have them learn anything. He holds them in existence for the sheer purpose of getting even to have them experience exquisite pain. And the way it's been portrayed throughout most of the church tradition has been that it involves fire. It's like being burned alive, but you never die. You just are perpetually being burned alive. It's torture. Now, that view is based mostly on six verses in the New Testament that speak about eternal damnation or eternal punishment. One is found in 1 Thessalonians. Paul says that, Uh, He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Note there's an intentional rejection there. They refuse to obey the gospel. And then he says, they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord. Everlasting destruction. And so in the traditional view, this has been taken to mean that they're eternally, unendingly in the process of being destroyed and suffering excruciating pain in the process. I, I remember when I first heard this teaching. I was in second grade, a little Catholic boy in Catholic school in second grade. And the priest came in, and whenever the priest came in to do a teaching, you know it was serious. Uh, it was either going to be about sex or hell. I went through the, the, the nuns did the rest, but on the t- tough stuff, the, the priest would come in. Father Chalky, and he gave this teaching on hell, and it was graphic, and it was lured, and it was absolutely nightmarish. And I, for the next year or so, maybe longer than that, at the age of seven, had a recurring nightmare about this. Terror, terrible nightmare. It was always the same. I was in the mouth of this volcano, inside the mouth of this volcano, and there's this little ledge that went around the mouth of this volcano, and you could barely stand on it. You know, it wasn't even as big as your feet, so you're trying to balance up against this this wall, and beneath us, maybe 100, 200 yards, is this boiling lava, and there's people fleeing around in there, screaming bloody murder, just screaming, just terrible, uh, as they're fleeing around in this hot molten lava. And we're trying to keep from falling into it, and smoke is rising out of the volcano, uh, up between us. And there's all these people on this ledge, joining me. And I, in this nightmare, saw Satan. Of course, being seven, I saw Satan as this red figure with horns and hoofs and a pitchfork, and, and he was floating around the, the parameter of this volcano, and he, and he had this wicked giggle as he was, he was kind of toy with us to cause us to lose our balance. And once in a while, he screamed this terrible, wicked scream as he would push somebody into the lava. They'd fall in there screaming all the way down, and then fall in the lava, and then they'd be flaying, flaying around like, like the rest of the people. It was terrifying. And the, the nightmare would always end with the devil coming right up to me and, 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 and looking me in the face with this wicked evil face, these wicked eyes, with this wicked giggle. And he starts like bumping me, you know, toying with me. And I'm screaming, just terrified. And that's how I'd wake up. And I'd wake up in a cold sweat. I'd sometimes wake up wetting the bed. I was so terrified. And the only way I could go back to sleep was by praying a ton of Hail Marys, you know, just uh, trying to get a little peace in this. I don't think it's the best strategy for, for teaching a kid how to love Jesus. Uh, didn't quite have that effect. And you wonder why I'm so screwed up now? Well, that, that's why. It, it's, seven-year-olds, I don't think, should have to dream dreams like that. But the question then is, is that true? Or is, is anything like that true? 
Now, here's the thing. At Woodland Hills, we don't have a doctrine about this because the things that we want to agree on are only those core things that we need to get the job done, the job being building the kingdom. And so we don't try to micromanage everything here. So this is one of those things we think people can come to reasonable different conclusions. We interpret scripture differently. We can have different opinions. Uh, so what we're going to share here is not the official view of Woodland Hills Church. I'm just going to share my view, which, as you know, is the right view, but uh, it's just my view. So... Don't feel you have to agree with this, um, but just, just consider. I'm going to give you four reasons why I don't think that is the correct view of hell. All right? um, I, I'll, I'll offer a different alternative way of thinking about this. First of all, the most important question to always ask whenever you're considering a, a possible belief, the most important question is to, ask, is to ask, what picture of God does it presuppose? Jesus is the definitive revelation of God as we teach all the time around here. He is the exact representation of what God is like down to his very essence, Hebrews 1.3. Um, he's not just one revelation among others. He's a revelation that culminates and supersedes all others. He is the word of God, the revelation of God, revealing God down to his very essence, especially in the cross. We see exactly what the character of God is like by looking at the cross, where God gives his life and suffers himself hell for every human being. Now, I will just confess that I have a great deal of trouble reconciling that beautiful picture of God with a picture of God who would keep people in existence throughout eternity for no other reason than to have them suffer. In fact, if I'm really honest with you, I'll confess that that view of God strikes me as incredibly sadistic. Now, you say, well, but no, it's just justice. But I've never been able to understand, as Rob Bell said, how a finite sin results in unending... Think about it, unending, literally never-ending pain. Uh, yeah, there's a certain justice and some pain, perhaps, but never-ending. Uh, and it's certainly, see, if, if Jesus on the cross reveals God down to his very essence, then that, 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 this is who, who God is. John says God is love and then defines love by pointing us to the cross. God is cross-like love. So everything God does expresses that essence. It is an act of self-sacrificial love. But I really have trouble understanding how it could be an act of self-sacrificial love to keep people in existence for no other reason than to have them experiencing pain. Because it is God who keeps everything in existence. Hebrews 1.3 also says that he sustains, he sustains all things by his powerful word. So he's holding them in existence for the sheer purpose of experiencing pain. Frankly, and I don't mean to be offensive, I'm just giving my honest perception, that strikes me as worse than Hitler. Because Hitler, what he did was demonic and nightmarish and wicked gassing millions of people, but at least it came to an end. But this traditional view of hell is like you freeze frame the, freeze frame the most exquisite moment of their torment just as they're suffocating to death. You freeze frame that and have them live in that for all eternity. Uh, I cannot reconcile that with the picture of God in Jesus Christ, which tells me something is amiss. So I go back and look at it again and say the scriptures again. This leads to my second point. It's true that we have six verses that use the word eternal, eternal punishment, eternal damnation, eternal destruction. But does that mean that people experience the destruction for eternity? Might it mean, I actually think it does mean, that it's eternal in terms of its effect, not its duration. Once it happens, it's forever. There's no second chances. It's irrevocable. It's like this. In Hebrews 9, uh, we're told that Jesus... Uh, did not enter the Holy of Holies by means of the of blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his, by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Now, does that mean that we'll eternally be in the process of experiencing redemption? 
Because if it does, it means that we'll be eternally sinning and being in need of redemption, which I don't think is a very biblical teaching. What the author is saying is that once we're redeemed, it's eternal. In fact, the meaning he's giving it is the exact opposite of the redemption being going on for all eternity. Because, see, he's contrasting it with the priest of the Old Testament who every year had to go in and offer up calves and goats to make atonement for sin. In contrast to that, Jesus did it once, and he did it for all, and once it's done, it's permanent. And so if you're in on this redemption, it's irrevocable. It's a permanent thing. And so it's eternal in its consequence, not in its duration. That, I believe, is what Paul is saying when he says that they'll suffer eternal destruction. It's not that they'll be eternally in the process of being destroyed, which is a weird concept if you think about it. Doesn't the process have to lead to destruction? Um, but, but aside from that, it's not that you undergo that forever, but once, once it happens, there's no second chances. It's irrevocable. You just forfeited your, 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 your right to eternal life. And so in that sense, hell is eternal. But I don't think it's something that people are going to endure or angels are going to endure endlessly throughout all eternity. Which leads to a third point. A lot of people assume that human beings are inherently immortal. Like our souls can't help but live forever. Now that was an ancient Greek view and it crept into the church at a certain point in time. But I submit to you that it's not the biblical view. We're not by nature eternal. The only one who's by nature eternal is God. And so Paul says that God alone is the ruler and he's the king of kings and the lord of lords who alone is immortal. God alone is immortal. Now, what it means to be saved is that you're in a relationship with the one who is immortal and so he gives you his life. So you inherit eternal life. But that's why the New Testament doesn't talk about eternal life as something we're created with. It talks about it as a gift that God gives us. So Paul says that the, 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 the free gift of God is eternal life. And Jesus says that my sheep know my voice and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish. The reason they'll never perish is because he gave them eternal life. But without that gift of eternal life, they would perish. We're not eternal by nature. We're eternal by gift when we put our trust in Jesus Christ. Now he gives us his life. This is why in the garden, the first couple, um, they weren't inherently immortal. God gave them the tree of life, which represents his own life. And they had to eat of that tree of life to have immortality. And their punishment then was being barred from that tree of life, which is why the Lord said, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so eternality is not something that everyone has, for better or for worse. It's something that only those who are in relationship with Christ have, and he gives them it from his own life. He shares it with them. The final point on this is is this. The way that the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, usually speak about the fate of those who are incorrigible in their obstinacy towards God, the wicked. The way it speaks about it usually is as a death, as a perishing, as a, a sense of total destruction. For example, in Second Peter we read this. Uh, he draws this analogy. He says, The Lord condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes. They're not still burning. They, they were burned, and they were burned to ashes. And made them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. What's going to happen to the ungodly? Are they going to fry forever? No, but apparently they'll, they'll be re- reduced to ashes, to, to nothingness. And this is the kind of thing we find throughout the Bible. I'll just give a small sampling here. Um, the wicked will be like chaff, and the wind the, the drives it away. The wicked will perish. The wicked will be blotted out of the book of the living, which means they're going to die. They'll be cut off, and they will be no more. They return to the nothingness from which they came. They'll perish like smoke that vanishes away. They'll be altogether destroyed. They'll be as though they had never been, Obadiah 16 says. 
Uh, they'll burn up like chaff with unquenchable fire. And that phrase unquenchable fire, by the way, comes out of the Old Testament. And in that context, it doesn't have the, the, the sense of going on forever and ever. It means it's unquenchable in, the, in, the, in that it will do what it does. Don't think you're going to escape this. It burns things up. Uh, but it's not something that goes on forever. Uh, Psalmist it several times says, the wicked will be like a dream when one awakes. Yeah, they, they, they sort of perish. And the main metaphors that are used in the New Testament to describe the fate, and they're all metaphors, uh, but to describe the fate of the wicked are these. Uh, the, the wicked are consumed as, as chaff and fire. They'll be destroyed. They will perish. They will die. All those denote kind of cessation of consciousness. And so here's how, I, here's how I put it together. This is just me, not Willow Hills. Feel free to disagree, but if the shoe fits, wear it. Uh, here's how I put it together. I think that when we die, we enter into the undiluted, perfect love of God. Uh, we, 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 God as he really is. Not diffused, not deciphered, the undiluted presence of God. And Paul, as well as the author of Hebrews, describes that love, that perfect love, as a consuming fire. And in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, We all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Two times he says that in 1 Corinthians and in Romans. There's this judgment seat of Christ that everybody is going to stand before. And this is what I think it is. We come into the presence of this love. And Paul says that that love purifies everything that's compatible with it and burns up everything that's not. It purifies gold or silver or precious stones, he says, but it burns up wood, hay, and stubble. And so for those who have a God-centered heart, who are, who are in, in relationship with God, it purifies them. It burns off the dross. Uh, it, 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 it's the process that's going on now. We call it sanctification, whereby we become increasingly conformed to the likeness of Christ. And whatever's not completed now, I think will be completed then. And, and it, that maybe won't be a pleasant experience, but we'll have joy in it, like we do now, knowing that it's going to lead to our perfect conformity with Christ, which is then how we can enter into the kingdom of God, because nothing that's not in conformity with Christ can enter that kingdom. All the wood in our life, every part of our life that is resistant to God, that gets burned off so that what's left is this perfect Christ-likeness. But to people who oppose that love, who don't want to submit to that love, well, they're only wood, hay, and stubble. And God's just being God. Uh, But now, like Luther said, hell is being in the presence of God in an unredeemed state. Hell is like darkness that when the light shines on it, 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 there's a contradiction there. So God's love is always the same, but these are folks who resist it, who refuse it. Uh, For a lot of reasons I can't go into right now, I'll share my conviction that as long as there's any hope of someone turning, or even an angel of turning and repenting, I think God will keep that person in existence in the hope that they'll turn. Because he wants all to come to repentance and doesn't want anyone to perish. But if there comes a point where an agent is hopelessly set against God, we become the decisions we make, right? Our decisions become habits, our habits become character, our character becomes our destiny. And it can be the case that a person gets without remainder, solidified in their resistance to God. God then, I think, just withdraws the gift of existence. He is the one who holds all things together by his word. He speak, we exist right now because he's speaking us. So all God, all God has to do is shut up, stop speaking, and they return to the nothingness from which they came. And that is a just thing. It's just because they, this is what they chose. The, the in, inherent consequence of resisting the God of life is death. And so they chose that, so there's justice there. But it's also an act of mercy. It's, it's kind of divine euthanasia, if you will. Because if God didn't do that, if God kept them in existence, they would experience what the traditional view says they do experience, which I can't reconcile with the picture of God that's revealed in Jesus. That's just my, 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 my take on this. Uh, hell is eternal in consequence, not in duration. 
But that leads to this final question, and it's this. Who goes there? Whatever you think about the nature of hell, is it the case that all who don't believe in Jesus go there? Is that what Jesus meant when he said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one goes to the Father except through me. Now, that was a lot easier to believe 100 years ago than it is today. For as I shared the first message in this series, the world has become much smaller in the last 100 years through travel and the Internet and media and, and things like that, and our own neighborhoods. We, 100 years ago, you could live most of your life and never come in contact with, have a personal relationship with someone who has a very different belief than your own. So it never got challenged. So to believe that everyone who doesn't believe like you believe is going to go to hell, that's sort of just an abstraction. It doesn't have any bite to it. But now, we rub shoulders with and sometimes have close relationships with people of different faiths who believe very different from us, who see the world very different from us. So now it gets personal. Not only that, but we sometimes can see their devotion and their sincerity, and maybe it even puts our own devotion and sincerity to shame. We can even see sometimes how their faith makes their life beautiful. And that raises, at a personal level, with an existential bite, the question, would God send someone like this to hell? Where's the justice in that? On top of that, because of our pluralistic environment, we're much more acutely aware than people in the past have been at the role that chance plays in this. Because you see these folks and you realize if you'd been born in the country they were born in, raised in the family they were raised in, raised in the culture they were raised in, you'd probably believe what they believe. And it's no coincidence that 98% or so of people born in Islamic countries adhere to Islam, and uh, 90% of those born in Christian countries identify with Christianity, and so with Buddhism, and so with Hinduism, and every other faith. So it raises the question, are people saved or lost by chance? Where they happen to be born? How they happen to be raised? What kind of personality profile they happen to be born with? What kind of culture they're born into? Is this based on chance? Would the God who gave his life for all human beings, doesn't want any to perish, and, and went to the furthest extreme possible on Calvary, leverage someone's eternal welfare, whether they share in his eternal life or not, on chance. Um, now, there's many people who believe that, but as a matter of fact, throughout history, here's the thing, I have been accused, if you can believe this, it's, I've been accused about everything in the book, but I've been accused of being liberal because I have hope for non-Christians. I'm not sure what the word liberal means anymore. I think it's synonymous with poopy face, so far as I can see. If you don't like someone, call them liberal, at least in some circles. Poopy face. So, because you, I have hope for, for, uh, for non-Christians. But here's the thing. Christians have always disagreed on this topic. The idea that all non-Christians are certainly going to go to hell is a rather recent innovation. It really only got solidified as a belief with, with the fundamentalist movement in the, in the 20th century, and evangelicals tend to come out of that. But in fact, most of the early church fathers, not all, but almost all of them, held out hope for non-Christians. Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Tatian, they had this hope. So there's nothing new about it and there's nothing liberal about it. It's just different from what the fundamentalists taught. And so now I want to share a couple of reasons why I have this hope. The first thing I want to say, and maybe it's the most important thing to say, is this. Whatever else we say about this topic, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one goes to the Father except through him. Amen. There's not many truths, not many ways, not many lives. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so whoever ends up being saved, it's not because they followed Buddha or they followed Allah. It was in spite of the fact that they followed Buddha or Allah or whatever. Uh, but they're saved through Jesus Christ. He is the one mediator. He's the one Savior. Not only that, but we've got to come clean and, and, and say out loud that the New Testament puts a premium, even an urgency, on having faith in Jesus now. 
The only assurance a person can have is if they have an actual relationship with Jesus now. And so there's an importance on that. And there's these dire warnings I just talked about, about, about resisting the gospel, about saying no to Jesus. Those mean something. There's, a, there's an urgency there, which is why evangelism is a non-negotiable for Christians. We are to be walking billboards of Jesus Christ, inviting others in on this kingdom. I'd see God more glorified as more people come into uh, under his love and know who he really is. And so whatever we say, it can't minimize the need for evangelism and certainly can't ever compromise the singularity of Jesus Christ. Now, having said that, let me say this. Jesus is the light of the world, the light. There's not a lot of lights. There's one light, single, single definite article. He is the light of the world. And he says, whoever doesn't walk in that light is walking in darkness. That's very true. But we also have to remember that the one who says he's the light of the world, John says this about him at the beginning of his gospel. This is the true light that gives light to everyone that was coming into the world. This is the light that gives light to everyone. Uh, That light is only perfectly manifested in the incarnate Jesus, but he is the light of the entire world. He is at work to enlighten everybody. So to the degree that anybody throughout time in any culture has light, that light is Jesus Christ. He is the light of the world. Now, they maybe don't know his name, but they'll know something about him to the degree that they yield to the light. Brianna talked about this passage uh, uh, last week in Acts 17. Paul's having this debate with these philosophers. And then he says that from the beginning, starting with Adam and Eve, with the rise and fall of different nations, the time and markings of different nations, God has been involved in that. And his purpose for being involved in that was this. He was getting people to seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him Though he's not far from any one of us. He's talking to these pagans here. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are, all of us are, his offspring. I love this passage. Here's the thing. We are given one storyline in the Bible. And it's the most important storyline because it's the storyline that leads to and points back to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. This is what God's been doing through Israel and, and now is doing through Jesus Christ. But we must never think that this exhausts God's activity. He just tells us what we need to know in this one storyline. We have indications like this all over the place that God is involved everywhere. He's not a parochial God. He's he's not a God we have a corner on. No, he's a free God. He's he's an untamed lion. He goes where he wants to go. And here he tells us he goes everywhere. He's involved in everyone's life, trying to get them to be hungry for him. From the very start, there hasn't been a human being that was born that God didn't consider his own offspring. And God loves that human being infinitely more than their own mother ever could. Every human being ever born. And so God is involved in that human being. He, he envelops that human being. In, in, in him, that human being lived and moved and had its being. Because that, that, that human being was his offspring. He has a passionate love for that human being. And so God's at work to reverse the effects of the fall, to get people to be hungry for him and possibly reach out for him. And even possibly find him. Whatever that looks like in that particular culture. You know, the cultures can suppress a lot of truth and a lot of different things. And, and maybe they've never heard about Jesus. But to, the, to whatever degree, there is light available to those people. And uh, they can find that light. This is why, if you study the world's religious holy books, like the Quran, the Bhagavad Gita, the Vedas, the Tao Te Ching, uh, Upanishads, you'll find a lot of error. But you'll come upon sometimes these remarkable Christ-like truths. And Christ is always the ultimate criteria for what is true and what's not. You'll find things that look very much like Christ. I don't know. They just pop out there. And so I, I think I can affirm that as light breaking through the darkness. The, God was working in their hearts too. And to the degree that they yield to, to, to him, they were yielding to the same God we yield to. They just didn't know his name. And so there's some truth there. 
Now, only through the incarnate Jesus do we find what the Father's really like, the way, the truth, and life. And, and only through him do, do we come to know God and have a saving relationship with him. But there are echoes of him all over the place, and that's because God is all over the place. In him, all people have lived and moved and have their being. And in every heart, he's been working to reveal as much light as possible. Which then leads to this, this next point, and that is this. Uh, do you ever wonder how people in the Old Testament got saved? You know, they were as much sinners as we are. In fact, we find even some non-Jews end up being held up as heroes of the faith. Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, Job, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. They weren't even the, the Jewish line, but they end up in heaven. How is that? Because they were as much sinners as we were. They needed grace as much as we did. They needed a Savior as much as we did. And yet, they're in. In fact, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life, no one goes to the Father except through me, I don't think that's something he just started doing in 33 or 30 AD. No, he's always been that. He's always been the word of God. He's always been the mediator between God and human beings. What that tells me, this also is not something that we have a doctrine here. This is, I'm sharing my view here. You can read it differently if you want. But uh, I, it seems to me that the, the, the saving work of Jesus encompasses far more people than who know about it. Picture this giant umbrella, this giant umbrella, and here are the people who know about it, and they're blessed because of that. They're, they're, you know, it's, they know the true God, but there's other people under that umbrella who are covered by the umbrella, but they just don't know that the name of the umbrella. Uh, they just know that they're not getting wet. <laughs> to, the degree that under, to the degree that they're under that umbrella, they're, 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 well, they're inside of Christ. And that's how people who don't have a chance to know Jesus, I think, I think they're judged on the basis of the light they receive. Paul says that in Romans 2. How do you respond to the light? In the end, I don't think it's the content of our head that saves or damns us. The thief on the cross couldn't have had a whole, a whole lot of good theology, folks. <laughs> Uh, last minute, it's like, okay, this is my only hope. I'm sure he was screwed up in almost every possible way, but God saw his heart. I think it's the inner disposition of a person. Ultimately, I think it comes down to this. Are you going to be a God-centered person or a self-centered person? Is God going to be God or are you going to try to be God? And, and it, it, you can't have it both ways. And if there's a heart that will submit, well, these are folks, when they finally get to see who, who it was that they were submitting to, uh, they fall in love with him because they've already said yes to the degree that they knew him. Now they just get the picture filled out, which is my last point. And this one's kind of unusual, but it's also pretty exciting. And this is just my view. But try it out. I, I think that from God's perspective, that umbrella encompasses everybody. Um, God's got a bear hug around everybody, and God's claiming everybody. Now, that's not just based on wishful thinking. Check out these verses. They're the kind of verses we tend to read them and we go, what? what? And then we forget about them. But just check it out. Just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act. Okay, that was Adam, the trespass. Now Christ, the one righteous act, getting crucified, resulted in justification and life for all people. That's funky. All people, all people. And then he says this in, in, in 1 Corinthians, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And then he says in 2 Corinthians 5, for Christ alone, Christ's love compels us. He's explaining why he's just so excited to tell everyone about Jesus. He says, because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. Now he just said in Christ all were made alive. Now he says in Christ all died. What's up with this? Paul, you're confused. Now what he's saying is, is this, that, that um, what Christ did, it, it, when Christ was nailed to the cross, all fallen humanity was nailed there with him. It, we all died. And that's so we can all live in Christ. Now, here's the thing. There's a number of verses like this. And there are some folks, an increasing number of folks, actually, who 
I think understandably come to the conclusion that this means that everyone's going to be saved. Uh, they, they, they take these, these passages to be like a promise. And I'll be honest with you, part of me hopes that they're right, <laughs> and that I'm wrong, because I don't share that view. Uh, but man, it would be nice if it was true. That makes me actually suspicious. Whenever I want something to be true too much, I have to be like, okay, I've got to question that. Uh, but how can I not hope for that? I mean, love believes all things and hopes all things. And if you have a love for all human beings, of course you'd want them to be in. If there's a way that God could save everybody and guarantee it, well, then I'm sure God would do that. Now, here's my problems with it, though, is that I find a major thrust of Scripture is to emphasize that love is a choice and we've got to choose it. Love is a choice and we've got to choose it. Um, and, and if a person can choose to resist God, here he can choose to resist God the next day, and the next day, and so on, and so on, and so on. And, as I shared with those other verses, there can be a point, it seems to me at least, that there can be a point of solidification where a person has no hope of ever turning. That's the other problem I have with this view, is that what do I do with all the passages I just read, and there's a trillion other ones. Uh, by the way, a great, good, great book on that whole, what's called Annihilationist View of Hell, is Edward Fudge. Uh, it's called, uh, uh, by Edward Fudge, uh, The Fire That Consumes. If you want to read more on that, I also wrote a little essay on that uh, in, uh, on my Renew website called The Case for Annihilationism back in 2008. You can just do a search and you'll find that there if you want to find out more about it. But uh, 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 what do you do with all those passages which speak about the finality of judgment? I've got to weigh all this. And it seems to me that the major thrust of Scripture is to give these warnings for people who are resisting God. And it's got to mean something. I'm more confident that we're supposed to warn people of the death consequences of rejecting the God of life than that we should be giving assurance to people that they'll be part of the God of life no matter what they do. Okay, so that's, that's how I weigh these things, even though part of me hopes that they are right. Here's how I interpret these verses. I, I see it as God's perspective on what happens on the cross. When, when Jesus died, Paul says God created a new humanity, a new humanity, and it seems to me that everybody is included in that. Uh, there's a new humanity. There's a forgiveness that is offered to everybody. Uh, and, and God's got this bear hug around everybody. He's like, come on in. This is, this, this is it's supposed to include all of you. And so it seems to me that the default setting has changed in light of the cross. That it's not now that you're an outsider unless you choose to get in. Rather, you're an insider unless you choose to get out. But you can choose to get out. And you do this by saying, no, thank you. I don't want that. Because it requires that we submit. We no longer, no longer live for our, ourselves. We, we, we live for God. And some hearts just don't want to go that way. The, the, the forgiveness is there. I think God answered Jesus' prayer when he said, Father, forgive them. I, I think that, that's a coverall. I don't think sin is what separates people from God anymore. Uh, resisting Jesus does. See, here's the thing. Forgiveness is, is you're forgiven. But that's not the same as reconciliation. I can forgive you for something you did, but it doesn't mean that we're cool with each other. Because what if you don't accept it? You don't even want it. There's no relationship there. What God wants is reconciliation. The forgiveness is from his side, but we have to accept it. And to choose not to is to court death. And so I think God, as long as there's hope for people turning, he works with them, keeps them in existence, pleads with them to turn, to accept it. See that it's in your best interest not to live for your own interest. Uh, he's the God of life. Submit to the one who is joy, who is peace, who is abundant life. And that's what's offered us in Jesus Christ. That light shines everywhere. It's manifested perfectly in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well... However you put it together, and I'd like to call up the worship team now to go into our second half of worship. But however you put it together, my, my, my core prayer is this. Um, there is out there, there's like some folks, 
they, they, they only feel special to God if everyone else, they can be sure of is going to hell. We are the saved club. Everyone else is going to hell. I, I pray that we don't have that mindset. I, we, we, don't make God a stingy God. He's, he's not a stingy giver of salvation. No, the cross is for everyone if, throughout all time. He's uber generous with his love, uber generous salvation. He's got a bear hug around everybody. And I pray we embrace, however you put the pieces together, embrace that picture of God and be a, build, a walking billboard uh, of that God. And when folks have these legitimate objections, I hope we have an answer that, that can make a little more sense uh, and, and, and show them the beauty of the God, the God who's altogether lovely, altogether beautiful, altogether self-sacrificial, altogether in favor of every human being that's ever been born and will do and has done everything possible to see that they come into that light. The one thing you can't do is force your choice. If you're not surrendered to Jesus, I pray you do that right now as we go into this time of worship. We ascribe worth to God by the focus of our attention as we sing these songs. Imagine the one we're singing to. Imagine what we're singing about. We'll start by taking up an offering if the ushers would come forward because we, we worship God not just with our words, but with the sacrifice of our life. So follow God's leading on that. And now we ask you, Holy Spirit, to come and flood this place. Thank you for being present here. We sense your presence. Let your joy erupt among God's people who know the beautiful God who's beautifying people through his love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.